Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Happy Memorial Day weekend to everyone. This week, we are running a special episode recorded live during the first impeachment proceeding against President Trump that previously was available only to paid subscribers. It's called White House Counsel, From the Sublime to the Ridiculous. And the topic, the position of the White House Counsel, one of the most important players in government, yet one that remains obscure to many, if not most people. The White House Counsel is always at the center of any scandals involving the president. That goes from John Dean, Nixon's White House Counsel, who famously told him there's a cancer on the presidency, to Don McGahn, who navigated Trump around some of his more illegal instincts and also stood up to him more than once when Trump's orders were beyond the constitutional pale. And of course, Pat Cipollone, who later replaced Don McGahn and was the White House Counsel during the second impeachment of the former president. But even in scandal-free days, the White House counsel plays a critical position. He is the ultimate Washington insider, the president's personal advisor who doesn't require confirmation. Depending on her relationship with the president, she plays an integral role in everything from picking judges to ethics to dealing with Congress. As you'll hear, the White House counsel represents the presidency and not the president, though in practice that distinction can be gossamer thin as it repeatedly was with former President Trump, who insisted on a White House counsel whose primary, if not sole lookout, was Donald Trump's personal fortunes. We are really lucky to have two former White House counsels to talk about both these broader theoretical issues and the day-to-day work in the West Wing. Bob Bauer, President Obama's counsel, and now a co-chair of the Supreme Court Commission, and Beth Nolan, who just announced her retirement as George Washington University General Counsel, a position she went to after she completed her stint as White House Counsel. And we've added to this episode material nobody has heard, a new discussion with Kate Shaw. Kate served as an associate White House Counsel in the first two years of the Obama administration. Her experience and observation fill in the portrait sketched out by Bauer and Nolan. We will be back next week with an all-new episode. It's not summer yet on the calendar, but I think we can say that summer has come. And it's an especially meaningful one after this last year. So we hope that everyone is enjoying its launch and the long summer days ahead. And now I give you White House Counsel, From the Sublime to the Ridiculous. Our focus today is on one of the most important positions in Washington, D.C., really in many ways the pivot point when it comes to the sort of scrutiny of the president's conduct that these weeks are about, the White House counsel. It's not surprising that we've been hearing about that position over the last three years, but the White House counsel operates largely out of the public and its precise function or functions can be a little mysterious. So to help explain some of the basics in the first place, but also to delve into these complications, we have the great good fortune to have two former White House counsels with us. First, returning to the show, Bob Bauer. Welcome back, Bob, and thank you for joining. Thank you. And second, from George Washington University itself, we welcome Beth Nolan to Talking Feds. Thanks for coming, Beth. Thanks. All right. 
So any casual student of Watergate remembers that John Dean came to President Nixon and told him there was a cancer on the presidency. Who was John Dean to be saying that? The White House counsel. We've heard Don McGahn. The fight over his testimony is probably the most intense and important in the whole Trump series of court challenges. Who was he? The White House counsel. Today we are reading that Mike Mulvaney, the chief of staff, is at loggerheads with Pat Cipollone. Who is he? The White House counsel. We know it's a super important but somewhat obscure position that is often encapsulated in a newspaper as the president's lawyer. But I think that phrase doesn't begin to explain the various tasks. And even that capsule description contains a vexing ambiguity that it, that we will learn dogs the daily and weekly work of the White House counsel. Does that mean the president's lawyer or the presidency's lawyer? And those two functions can sometimes come apart. So l- let me start there with either of you. The president's lawyer, do you chafe at that? How does it begin or not begin to actually describe the job you had? So I don't, I don't have any trouble with saying the president's lawyer. I just think what that means is what's really important. And it's clear to me that the White House counsel is not the president as an individual that the lawyer of the president is an individual. Not Rudy Giuliani. Uh, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. That's correct. The president is, however, the one who speaks for the presidency. So that's why I don't get so worried about whether you call it the president's lawyer or the presidency. But it's Although an official that position. that you come down strong on it's the presidency's lawyer, not the president's lawyer. I, I, it's an official position. It's not a personal position. So you're not serving the personal interests of the president. Sometimes those converge the personal interests of the president and the official interests of the president. I don't think you can draw a neat line, but always your touchstone, I think, has to be what's the official purpose here? What's the governmental purpose here when you're serving as White House counsel? Agree, Bob? I do agree. I also agree that in application, it can be a little tricky because you're representing the president, but the president is this flesh and blood individual that you actually give legal advice to. And And who probably himself or herself doesn't see this distinction necessarily all that finely. Well, some don't. But I do think that it is very important to distinguish between the personal and political interests of the president. Say, for example, the personal legal issues the president faces or the political responsibilities as head of the party that the president has and the president's responsibilities under the Constitution. The presidency, again, as Beth says, is an institution that the lawyer is representing. The only other thing I would say is it's the president's lawyer. And we can get back into this, but there have been different White House counsels with different visions about what it means to be the president's lawyer. Are you a senior aide in the broadest sense, who happens to have a law degree and also counsels on legal issues but delves into policy matters? Or are you the president's lawyer? Are you providing legal advice? Are you staying in that lane? And that's also been a source of some conflict yeah. uh, in the White and House. And my sense is it's very dramatically over the relatively short period of the White House counsel, you had Clark Gifford, who was basically a political fixer for Truman. You had Ted Sorensen, who was basically a speechwriter for Kennedy. I mean, in part because perhaps it's a position that's not confirmed. And, you know, there may be more than in other incumbents. You make it up after you 
get there, and that might leave room for more play in the joints. It's probably stabilized, is my sense, in the last 20 years. Well, I'm already going to veer madly off script then in this personal and professional distinction and take you to your time serving President Clinton. There are lots of things that immediately concern his personal conduct and yet obviously serve in some sense the long-term and short-term interests of the presidency. Do you remember having to sort of tease that apart in particular ways? I think it also comes up for Trump or, or, or it, you know, is that not germane because you weren't there till 99? No, it, it's germane. And I was also there as an associate counsel at the start of the administration when we were really figuring such, out yeah. how to how to do a lot of these things. But absolutely, especially at that time, the impeachment was over when I became White House counsel, but the independent counsel investigation, Ken Starr's investigation by then Robert Ray, right. as the, was, was still ongoing. Uh, that's a perfect example. The president had private counsel, David Kendall, among others, who was representing him in that investigation. But there was a role for the White House counsel, a perfectly appropriate role, because we were still thinking about questions like, is it appropriate for a prosecutor to interview a president? How does that get done? What are the guardrails on that? And those are questions that are of interest to the government and to those who are concerned about how the executive branch operates. But that's completely different from David Kendall's role as private counsel who's worrying about the uh, president's criminal liability. That was not my responsibility. And did you have any kind of, was there a Venn diagram? And I mean, David Kendall is a extremely gentle, manly person, but did, did you nevertheless have any kind of waves or friction about, this is my lane guy, no, it isn't, this is me? No. No it's friction. We, yeah. I think a lot of that probably had been worked out, but I'm guessing there wasn't friction anyway. I think everybody had a pretty clear idea. You still have to apply it. Yeah. Um, but the application was being done in a spirit of a mutual understanding about what the different roles were and then trying to figure out exactly where the lines were. Okay. But let's think about Trump and the position that Pat Cipollone, Cipollo, not Cipollone, right, is in. I mean, in a sense, the the gravamen of the charge is that Trump was being personally Donald Trump when he should have been President Donald Trump. Now that we're in impeachment hearings and the status of the presidency, the future of the presidency is at stake, what would not be at this point Pat Cipollone's lookout? Now you're White House counsel in this kind of huge crisis is just pretty much everything now legitimate for for him to be weighing in on? It depends in what way he weighs in on it. So he does have an institutional role. It's an institutional responsibility. Impeachment is, after all, a challenge to the president's eligibility to continue to hold uh, his or her office. In that sense, it certainly concerns the White House counsel, and the White House counsel is in the middle of it. As we know from the letter the White House counsel, Trump's White House counsel, has sent to Capitol Hill saying that uh, the president's view was that the impeachment process was illegitimate and he wasn't going to participate in it. Did that have to come from White House counsel? Yeah, yeah. In my view, and 
we might as well get into yeah. contentious issues right off the bat. Yeah. I think that letter was extremely misguided and shouldn't yeah. have come from the White House counsel. I don't well, think it would have come from either of these uh, White House right? okay. <laughs> Well, sir, I can say one thing. I can start <laughs> yeah. off. The, I mean, I don't even consider this controversial. As a lawyer, as a matter of legal analysis, it was not even first-year law school level. So that's one problem with it. But I think you're suggesting that just in conception, it was a wrong to go at all from anywhere in the ambit of the presidency or wrong specifically to go from the White House counsel? And if the latter, why? That particular letter, the way it because was framed in the yeah. tone of it, should not have come from the uh, White House okay. counsel. So it's a matter the of framing counsel, tone. Yeah. That the White House counsel might have sent a letter related to impeachment, I can imagine. But setting aside your characterization, which yeah. I share of the quality of the legal analysis, yeah. The problem here, and I think it does tend to surface the distinctions we're trying to draw between the president's personal interests and the president's institutional interests, the letter was not a letter that attended to the long-term institutional interests of the presidency. It took a position that a White House counsel looking long-term at the interests of the institutional presidency should not have taken. It had somewhat of the feel, if you recall, of the letter that Donald Trump famously dictated to his physician in the back of the car. It had a feeling, I had very much that kind of feeling that he was sort of taking down Donald Trump's talking points. And that is not a position that a White House counsel should have been in, both on substance and on tone. I want to double back to all these incredibly interesting topics. Let's just take a few minutes on nuts and bolts. So, you know, give us details like where physically are you in the important real estate map of the West Wing? How many people work for you. What, if you can say, let's take it out of the context of impeachment, uber crisis, but a given week or month would have certainly crises. How are you basically spending your day? Are you on the, are you always in meetings? Is it with agencies? Sure. So um, you're in the West Wing. So that's valuable real estate by itself. You're not on the, um, the, the same floor you're not the same, so you can't just chuck a baseball into the office or something. Yeah. Um, but I always think that's really good for the lawyers to be just a little away from from the. Literally, um, how how long a walk is it if you're striding quickly? If you're striding quickly, it's three minutes. Four, you know, it's it's nothing. Um, the West Wing is small. It's it's yeah. a, it's a small building. That's the value of the um, real estate. Yeah. So, and your days are going back to what you said at the beginning, right? Every White House and probably every White House counsel's office operates differently. There's no statutory duties or responsibilities. You're an assistant to the president among many and, 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 and counsel to the president. But a lot of it depends on what's going on in the country, what's going on in the administration, and what the particular White House counsel's interests are, because you have other people working for you. At one point, I think, I had 40-some people. Right. Now, that, that had inflated somewhat because of all what... what, what the investigations. Typical, yeah, the, we had but, a big yeah. investigations practice, right, because there were so many but hearings. So normally with ethics and different ballywicks, there'd be, what, 20? or 25, yeah. I would guess. I don't, I don't know, Bob, where you were. But, but I could have a day where I'm in a meeting talking about... Uh, so the, the, the first time the... Um, White House Easter egg roll was going to be webcast. We all of a sudden thought, so I don't know if people realize this or not, but at the White House Easter egg roll, cabinet secretaries would read some of their favorite children's books to children there. 
And so for the first time, we realized we had to consider the question whether we had to worry about copyright when these stories were now being read and would be webcast. Right? Get me the council. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Get me the council. Yeah. Or the chef shows yeah. up in, in his hat, you know, and, and is got some a question for you. I mean, you go from that to some life or death question in the next hour. The way White Houses normally operate, I don't know what happens here in the current administration, but the way White Houses normally operate is other people aren't calling the Justice Department for legal advice except through the White House counsel. Through the White House. That's right. So your the White House counsel is the one that's making contact with the Department of Justice if it's about a particular case, if it's seeking legal advice. So that's why it might come to the White House counsel, even though it's going to go right to the Office of Legal Counsel, the Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General. I don't know, Bob, yeah. was that a no, your that's experience? Absolutely correct. Absolutely. And, and, but, and but also wanted to amplify your the feel of your day. How often you saw the president. I know that probably varied, but et, et cetera, yes. stuff like that. So one quick thing. I thought you were asking the question about whether or not there's a reason why there's a White House counsel and all this traffic doesn't simply go directly to the attorney well, what, general. Yeah, let me, let me yes. uh, amplify that a little. I think, I think it's the case. You know, the attorney general was considered the president's lawyer in the Constitution. The position has existed less than 100 years. John Dean famously, nobody even knew who he was. He had no staff. You know, in the last 40 years, I think we have the modern White House counsel's office, yet you can certainly see, and maybe the original scheme was not to have this sort of position, and especially in the more weighty, and you know, maybe not the Easter egg role, but the more weighty issues that Beth is talking to, I'll bet most attorneys general or OLC are expecting to get that call. So, yeah, these are two very different questions, Bob, but I hope you can handle. A, why the White House counsel? B, yeah, tell us a little bit about your day. Yeah, very quickly, when yeah. Roosevelt decided that he wanted an in-house yeah. counsel, if you will, and again, it was much more of a policy-focused position, the Attorney General of the United States at the time, Francis Biddle, strongly objected. He didn't want it. And uh, Roosevelt had to work it out. And he finally called the future White House counsel, Sam Rosenman, and said, you're clear to come. I've worked it out with Biddle. And Rosenman said, just because I ought to know, how did you work it out? And he said, I'm not going to call you my counsel. I'm not going to call you White House counsel. And secondly, I'm going to announce your appointment when Biddle is in Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) So the line then at the time was, the president needs help. The president needs help. And that's the whole idea is that there's there's and and this is a very complicated subject. And there are people like Bruce Ackerman at Yale. Yeah, well, a very complicated (laughs) subject about what it means that the president has an operation that some have come to view as, quite frankly, a very misguided allocation of resources and in some respects a very dangerous one inside the White House. So this is actually a very controversial issue. Let's get as, back to that right after this. Okay. Certainly. As to, the, as to the texture of things, Beth is right. The White House is really, really small. Robert Gibbs, the former Obama press secretary, used to say working in the White House was like working in a submarine. You're on top of everybody. The White House Council is very fortunate because there's a suite that has been traditionally set aside for the White House Council on the second floor, which arouses no small amount of envy from other White House staffers who are sort of tucked into corners. The Oval Office is third floor, is that right? The Oval Office is on the first floor, and the White House Council's office is on the second, but close to the staircase, so you can get down quickly, or if your chief of staff is angry at you, so he can kick you 
down the stairs. <laughs> in any event, I worked for Rahm Emanuel. So in any event, <laughs> so in any event, uh, the day is precisely as Beth suggests. It goes from the sublime to the ridiculous, from the small to the large. And the task of the White House counsel, particularly the, the White House counsel, and the White House counsel's deputies who are located in the West Wing where the rest of the staff is located in the old executive office building, is to conserve time and allocate resources in such a way so that the White House counsel can focus on what's really significant of immediate concern to the president, but still the rest of the work that needs to be done, like the compliance work that Beth referenced in relation to the Easter egg roll, can also be handled. So there's a day, my day began by meeting with my deputies in the West Wing, but there were meetings I had throughout the day with department heads, if you will, within the White House counsel's office, those who were in charge with oversight. By, by department heads, I mean those who were in charge of particular functions within the White House counsel. Understood. Yeah. Okay. Oversight, judicial nominations, ethics, yeah. right. vetting, ethics. Correct. National security being one that, you know, of critical importance, taking up more and more time of White House counsel's day. And is it the kind of job that you're, you know... It's it's champagne from the fire hose, and then you have to at say eight o'clock go from eight to eleven, just sifting through, going through the in, inbox, actually doing your own thinking. When when would your day end? The day ended very late in my case. Uh, our chief of staff, the chief, I worked for three different chiefs of staffs, but in Rom's day when I first arrived there. He had a 7.30 senior staff meeting mm -hmm. and had expected everybody to have read the major papers by 7.30 in the morning. So okay. you had an idea of what the press environment was that particular day. So you had to be up early preparing for the 7.30 and then there was an 8.30 larger senior staff meeting. And then I had my meeting with my people and then the day was launched. And, and, well, and that's sort of an important point. So you're very much thumb on the pulse of the, of the daily news. I'm sure there would be projects out of sight or maybe longer term. But you guys are reactive in that in that sense. Something comes down the pike about maybe this new phone call. Why was Trump on a cell phone? Uh, that's White House counsel is having to, to figure that out. Yeah, you're, you're both trying to understand the political environment that the whole White House is working in so you can do a better job as counsel and spot issues um, that as you read the news. Okay. And so one final nuts and bolts question I'll bet that I think people are curious about. It probably varies a lot by, from among White House counsels and varies a lot within an individual White House counsel, but amount of time with the President of the United States. A, is it your sense it varies a lot? And B, what was your own experience about that? Both of you, please, Beth. So I think it does vary a lot. With people, some White House counsels are sort of one of the president's very closest advisors. I was a close advisor, but not, I wasn't giving the president political advice, which I think some White House counsels have done, or even a lot of policy advice except on real legal policy issues. So I saw the president when I needed to see the president about an issue when he wanted to see me or I had a question. And, you know, that was regularly, that but it wasn't daily. It, 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 not it def daily, definitely but not daily, and and more more at his instance or more at your instance. Either, I, I really it really varied. He would have questions, or I would have things I needed to bring to him. And John, when I was White House counsel, could you could you did you have to go through somebody to to in that situation? Unless I thought I shouldn't for a particular matter, I would let the uh, chief of staff chief know. Chief of staff, okay. yeah, Bob. 
it depended on the advisory structure to some extent that the chief of staff set up. So if there were senior advisory meetings, uh, senior advisor meetings every morning, the White House counsel was included. Those might not take place every morning, but if there was that structure in place, and for some of the chiefs of staffs I worked for, it was, and the White House counsel saw the president every day, at least in that setting. In the other settings, as Beth explained, I would either request to see him about something I thought I needed to discuss with him directly. Request or, of the chief of staff to see him. Uh, actually not. In my case, I mean, I, if, unless I thought it was something the chief of staff really needed to know, uh -huh. I wouldn't go behind the chief of staff's so, back and raise something really significant with the president. But if I was following up on something that had been discussed in the advisory committee meeting or the senior advisors meeting, or there was something that he had asked me to do, I would feel free to talk about it with him directly. But that wasn't leaving the chief of staff in the dark. Well, maybe if this is my point. But when you say directly, I, I would think it's the very it's rare that you just bop on uh, down. So, I mean, would no, you, I would, wouldn't bop on down. So I would call. Would you, there are two this, assistants this, who sit outside the Oval Office right, and that, I would okay. call one of them and say, can I, I'd like yeah. to see the president. Okay. What would be That's a good time meant. for me yeah. to come by? And then I would I would come by. Yeah. And I, I would do the same thing. Right. And then I just would be sure the chief of staff knew yes. what yeah. I was talking with the president. So about. what about impeachment in particular? What is the White House counsel's role in a situation such as the impeachment of Donald Trump? I know there haven't been that many, but there always are crises, even existential crises. So what do they indicate as far as the role of the White House counsel in an impeachment? Well, I think the White House counsel's job in something like this is to advise people as best as possible about what their obligations are with respect to this inquiry, what their legal rights are. But the White House counsel isn't the one that's going to be able to make someone do something or even decide whether someone do, does something or not. What you can do is advise and you can decide at some point, if your advice isn't taken, my time uh, of being useful here is done. You know, we're in a crisis situation. OLC and even the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, is going to be pushing toward a, a assertive view of Article 2 that might be sort of pushing the envelope of the law. Or is it sort of objective to say the White House counsel is not behaving properly if he or she you know, pushes it a little bit um, more, takes a kind of hyper-aggressive uh, position thinking, for example, in the overall scheme of things, this will get us out of hot water, and I know we'll lose in the courts, but, you know, that's what I think is best for the client. So I think that that even if you believe that it is legitimate to take those positions— question mark here whether they're exaggerated in the legal counsel's description of the, the state of the law. But even so, even if you're willing to take an aggressive legal position, do you allow yourself as White House counsel or the office of the White House counsel to be used to run the political campaign? Right. That, that was a political strategy. And impeachment is in many ways a political, yeah. you know, probably at least as political as legal, maybe more so. But the council, I think, to really continue to be effective needs to stay in the council's mm -hmm. lane. And you, you feel comfortable saying that? Do you think this is the objective way that a, that a council just, just has to be? I think you, as White House counsel, serve your client best if people understand their roles. Okay. Going back to what I said, everybody has to do their job. 
there's a job for the White House counsel, and it's not to be the assistant to the president for political affairs. And you work with that assistant, but you you don't do their job because then your voice and stature as the legal advisor, I think, can really be diminished. And that really harms the client eventually. Well, Oh, Bob, you're, you're – yeah, you're, yeah, I, I, I couldn't, put, I couldn't yeah. put a stronger exclamation point on it. Yeah. The gravest threat to a White House counsel's office is that the excitement of being involved in these political communication strategies draws the lawyers into it. And what that means is they wind up – if they wind up in this position, and I certainly fought hard against it, and I counseled the team that I headed against it – they wind up aligning themselves with particular positions on communications and political yeah. issues. What does that mean? That means in the future, when they give legal advice, the natural question in the minds of a senior staff person who's getting that advice is, are you giving me legal advice? Yeah. Or are you giving me legal advice that's shaded by your policy or political preference? And, and, you your, have and to your alliances have a, in, the, in the White House. And the stuff, question yeah. is, are you as White House counsel establishing yeah. a role for yourself as an honest broker who can be relied upon to be a legal counselor and not a wannabe political consultant? That seems to put it perfectly. Well, but So let me try to just put a, a point on it. There's a line that you need to adhere to, to abide, uh, abide that is... Um, less aggressive than a private uh, lawyer would be? I'd I'd go back to what we were talking about at the beginning about who you're a lawyer for. And when you are White House counsel, you are serving not just this president, you are serving that president. And that president, whoever sits in the office, is the one who gets to make the decisions about uh, what's in the interests of the presidency at that point. But the White House counsel still has an obligation, I think, to try to advise thinking about what is also in the best interests of the presidency and what is in the best interests of the executive branch. And you are playing a long game. You you are thinking uh, about our constitutional norms. And that really has to be part of your advice. You should be. You should be thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Did it ever happen to you? And you probably, if you, it may be just a yes or no. And and does it happen uh, ever to White House counsels that they, you know, explain all this to the president and explain the long range views and explain the best thing to do? And the president responds, "Thanks very much. I hear you. I want to do it the my way. I don't. I don't want to worry about that." At that point, do you salute? At that, if it's not a, so, we know Don McGahn. Uh, it's been widely reported, was Trump ordered him to fire Mueller and he prepared a letter of resignation. So certainly at certain points, you, you have to say, I, you know, I can't be involved in that. But are there, it, does it happen with some frequency that just the president orders you, countermands your advice and, and that's that? The president makes law for the executive branch. Yeah. The president can be dissuaded in a case where there are legal options, if you will. There are different ways of looking at the legal environment in which a decision has to be made. The president can decide that of the options that you lay out or the positions that you take, the one that you prefer is not the one that he or she prefers. That the president, entirely the president's prerogative. And I'm now speaking now exactly as you suggest, yeah. not of ethical or legal right. agreements not to violate the law. Right. That didn't come up in my time. You know, 
do something unethical, do something illegal. That I did not have an experience with. Right. Then the question is, what do if lawyers have a very strong view on something? You know, what are the best ways that they can go about persuading the president that their view is in fact the better view, both from his perspective as an individual president and also from an institutional perspective? And that's where White House counsels have to be able to navigate the West Wing environment. You'd like to go in there, for example, with the support of the White House chief of staff <laughs> and the White House deputy chief of staff, right? right? Yeah. And if there's a communications issue, you'd like to have go in there with the support of the director of communications and the White House press secretary. So those are all components of bringing to the president advice that's informed by everybody. But each of them, to stress what Beth was saying, is doing their own job. The one thing you're not doing and then I systematically tried to do, even though I must say for there were times when I'm a political animal, it killed me to do it, was to decline to give my political advice, even if directly asked, just to demur. Wow. Because that was not my role. Yeah. You saw um, all right. I'd like to return to this question we set aside even uh, briefly, because it, it was a, a very interesting sort of hanging chad, you might say. Uh, this notion that 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 some uh, respectable voices would say we shouldn't even have a White House counsel. It's a misallocation of resources. What's that basic argument and your response to it? So I, I think Bob um, laid out this, the basic argument that there's a Justice Department, there's an attorney general, and that's the argument that the president doesn't need another lawyer. I, uh, having been in the White House counsel's office really disagree with that. It was absolutely clear in the Clinton administration when we still had an independent counsel statute and the attorney general and the Department of Justice considered themselves recused from a number of matters we were dealing with, including advice about how we should respond to congressional inquiries that involved the same matters that were being reviewed by prosecutors. So the White House needed legal advice in that case. But beyond that, I think there's a real role. The attorney general also has a different role. Um, the attorney general you. is a prosecutor as well as a legal advisor to the president. And I don't mean I'm not just talking about the president's or someone in the White House's criminal liability, but it's a different function. And the White House counsel, I think, can be a really great translator and also a buffer so that political inquiries get buffered before they go to the Justice Department, if they go through the White House Counsel's Office as they properly should. Um, I think it really protects the White House and it helps our government work better to have a White House Counsel. I agree with Beth that the president needs on-hand accessible legal advice. We talked about it, the White House Counsel being three minutes away from the Oval Office, and that's really critically important. The president wants to talk to his or her lawyer. The case against the White House Counsel's Office institutionally runs somewhat like this, that the White House Counsel has become increasingly powerful. It's not accountable. The president answers for the White House Counsel, I suppose, but the White House Counsel doesn't no, typically. No nomination, confirmation. No nomination, no confirmation, and a considerable amount of resistance, even though that can be negotiated out to even giving testimony to the Congress in controversies. That does happen, as Beth can testify. It does occur. At least four times. It, it does occur. I, fortunately, <laughs> I escaped it. I escaped it even without the help of Mr. Cipollone. And the argument is that it can become, if you will, sort of a rogue informal legal institution that permits the president to circumvent 
the formal legal processes elsewhere that have more of the public appearance, more of the institutional norms that reassure the public that the rule of law is predominant, not just the will of the president. And an example would be, and I certainly ran into this criticism when I was White House counsel, when the White House counsel coordinates legal advice on behalf of the president, say, on a national security issue, and the question is, where was the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department? Where was the General Counsel to the Defense Department of Defense? Why is it that this office in the White House, the president's team, right, is the one that seems to be driving the decision? That is a dangerous situation because, and I'll cite Professor Ackerman at Yale with whom I don't agree, but I'll say he believes that these lawyers – uh, are typically lackeys, that essentially they're at the beck and call of the president and that they don't draw the sharp distinctions that Beth correctly drew between the institutional president, presidency and the individual president, and that it leads essentially to executive lawlessness. I see. I, I'm reminded it's not exactly right because he's on he's a white he's the vice president's lawyer rather than White House counsel, but of the uh, role of David Addington in the torture memos, that it seemed as if it, that, that process was being driven from the, from the White House. So I, I take that kind of uh, criticism. You guys have had, have had it was such, sounds like such an unbelievably rich job, and I, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous. I'd actually like to close out by just asking each of you to tell one story uh, it might, I, you know, it might be of the gravity of the Easter egg roll. It might, <laughs> it might or might not involve the government. But when you're, you know, when you're, you know, 30 years from now, your grandchildren say, what was it like being White House counsel? Well, you know, just one, one sort of vivid thing that you remember and your choice, dealer's choice. I have a story. I mean, I, it, it, once again, it comes back, and I, I had a good working relationship with it, and I enjoyed working with him. But my first chief of staff was Rahm Emanuel. And when I came on, we were in the closing phases of trying to get the Affordable Care Act passed through the Congress. And there was a particular negotiation with a certain caucus of Democrats that I was responsible for. And the question was, would we resolve that negotiation and would they support the bill? And to say that Rahm was in regular contact with me about that is an understatement. And his conversation, his, his messages were always short, to the point, and unforgettable. Sometimes and I recall that, yes. And then when, the, when the, this particular caucus of Democrats announced whether they would or would not go ahead, satisfied with what we had offered, support the bill, they actually didn't inform us in advance. They went on CNN and had a press conference. I happened to be in Rom's office standing next to him when the press conference was announced. <laughs> And my life passed in front of my eyes. <laughs> my life. I thought if they, if the answer is we can't support the bill, I'm never leaving this office. <laughs> Not at least the way I came into it. <laughs> okay, so I, I'll I'll give you one um, on the more frivolous side, but it it I think illustrates the kind of range you can expect. So uh, President Clinton was uh, president when we turned over to this millennium, and there was a big event on the mall. And all which was being produced elsewhere, but the president was was going to be there. And Quincy Jones was producing it. And he called me to tell me that Bono was crying because of a decision I made, <laughs> which, wow. which was that we weren't cutting to commercial from anything the president from from immediately the president presenting because I didn't know what the commercials would be. And I wanted to be sure if the president was speaking on national television that there wasn't a commercial that followed it 
that would be embarrassing for the president. So um, uh, I never expected when I was White House counsel that I would make Bono cry. You made Bono cry. Well, there you go. Something to remember. (laughs) Infrastructure may not be a common word you use when you chat with your friends, but it's implied every time you complain about the traffic congestion that delays your commute. Or when you talk about the drought, get frustrated because your internet isn't working. Or when the electricity is out. It may not be sexy, but infrastructure is essential to every part of our lives. From the water you use to shower and brush your teeth in the morning, to a safe roadway on your drive home from work. We can't just keep wishing for things to be better. We must invest in smart infrastructure now and get to work. Join the Rebuild SoCal Partnership as we celebrate Infrastructure Week with the hope to indeed build back better. You can learn more when you listen to our podcast, The Rebuild SoCal Zone, at rebuildsocal.org slash podcast, or wherever you find your podcasts. Before we sign off the episode, I checked in with another former White House Council member, Kate Shaw. Kate's a friend of the podcast and a professor of law and co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardozo Law School. She's also a contributor with ABC News, and she co-hosts the terrific Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny, as well as serving as a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. But before joining Cardozo, Kate worked in the White House Counsel's Office as a Special Assistant to the President and Associate Counsel to the President, a heady title for a young lawyer just out of a clerkship. Her tenure also coincided in large part, not totally, with that of Bob Bauer. And I wanted to ask her about what it was like to work in the office and how Bob's point of view and his account of the experience coincided with her own. So, Kate Shaw, thanks a lot for joining. Let's just start by explaining when in your career you joined the council's office and how it came to be. Sure. So I did work in the council's office at the same time as Bauer, but I actually joined the office at the very beginning of the administration when Greg Craig was the White House counsel. I finished clerking for Justice Stevens in the summer of 2008. And so I finished my clerkship and I really wanted to go work on the last couple of months of the presidential campaign. But because the campaign had been ongoing for so long, it was really staffed up. So after a really kind of tenacious couple of weeks, I managed to land myself an unpaid position, (laughs) and it was work. So I went and worked on the campaign for a couple of months. It turned into a job on the transition. So then I worked on the transition, and the transition job turned into a job in the council's office. Really cool story, but let me just ask. So you've listened to Bob and Beth and me talk, and an important aspect that emerged from there was the whole philosophy of the White House council. And Bob, I thought, very characteristically underscored keeping away from what could be tantalizing for a lot of people in politics, the kind of policy realm that is also happening all around you. Was that something that was your marching orders from Bauer or his deputies? I think that ethos that he was voicing there was very much palpable and present in the office. As he came in, so again, Greg Craig was the White House counsel for just about the first year, and then Bauer came in around November. And I think all of us watched very closely the way he approached the role and learned quickly that this was sort of his vision of it. And so I think that was very clear, that we were not in 
the office to advance a particular policy agenda or even legal policy agenda, but to assess and to evaluate risks associated with various courses of action that, you know, policymakers wanted to consider. You had the first vacancy, the one that Justice Sotomayor was nominated for. And I think during your tenure, you also had the Kagan vacancy. Tell us how things are different and what it's like when there's a Supreme Court nomination. Those are really all hands on deck kinds of moments in a White House counsel's office. Everybody understands that it is one of the president's most important and high impact constitutional roles to nominate a justice to the Supreme Court. And so we came into office in January, and I think it was April when Justice Souter notified the president of his intent to retire. Obviously, work had been done to try to begin to identify lists of candidates and to prepare initial memos. But once there was a real vacancy, then things just kicked into really high gear. There are just a short list identified. And a team, there were two of us assigned to each of the kind of first tranche of kind of top candidates. And so deep, deep dives. These are mostly sitting judges. And so you're reading everything they've ever written, both scholarly work and judicial work. A lot of them had spent time in, in academia. These are a deep kind of public records review. And that was really most of what we, the lawyers, did. And then there's this other public records kind of vetting check that's part of it as well. But the counsel's office lawyers are mostly just doing the kind of substantive review of their legal writing. The staff-level lawyers we're producing a draft, and then there's a lot of top review by the deputy and then by the council, and then the, that memo goes into the president. In at least one of the vacancies, there'll be like an 11th hour kind of curveball, which is like, the president is actually interested right. in someone else. Like, can you put together a 24-hour memo looking at everything this person has ever written and maybe, maybe just say this person has written a lot? And so you just have to do what you can do in 24 hours, and you have to put together something decent because it's going to go into the president's hands by noon the next day. Um, and I remember this distinctly. The first time I was in on the first candidate, somebody had told me the day before, like a senior staffer, but someone else who had been involved in the operation said, you know what, maybe just put together like a one-pager with some bullets on this one kind of area of concern. So I said, okay, it's a good idea. So I put it together the night before and then walked into the Oval Office the next morning with the one-pager and just handed it to the president. And afterwards, someone pulled me aside and said, you can't just hand a piece of paper to the president. <laughs> There's a process for this. It goes to the staff exactly. secretary. The staff secretary refu Brown, reviews right. it for form. And no one was actually mean about it, but it was like, it was a, just a massive protocol breach on my part that I had been totally clueless about. But like the White House is a very rule-bound institution. Like I hadn't been in government before and I hadn't internalized all these norms. But you know, you learn them quickly. You make that mistake only once. <laughs> and you know, it's fun. If, if you get a mulligan, that's a nice mulligan to get. My sense, and this is really the question, whatever is going on elsewhere, the beehive of important activity is through the council's office. I think that's right, although I think that there have been various attorneys general who are very close personally to the president. And I certainly think DOJ has a very important role in the judicial selection and vetting process. But I do think that that really it's the council's office and, and the president and the chief of staff and a couple of other political advisor types. But that's a place where the Bauer distinction between kind of political advisor and legal advisor, I think, might collapse a little bit, right? Because these decisions about whom to nominate to the Supreme Court are not divisible, right? The sort of the legal and the political, I think, are too closely linked. All right. Well, thank you so much. We could go on about this for a long time, but this really rounds out very well what Bob and Beth were talking about. Kate Cha, thanks very much for being with us and talking about the White House Counsel's Office. That's our Memorial Day episode on the White House Counsel. Thank you very much to Bob Bauer, Beth Nolan, and Kate Shaw. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. 
And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Lopatin. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Matt McArdle. Consulting producer, Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.